Hi, this is Dr. Ruth Gautian, author of The Success Factor, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Dr. Ruth Godian. Ruth Godian holds dual responsibilities at Will Cornell Medicine as the Chief Learning Officer and as an Assistant Professor of Education in Anesthesiology. She's the former Assistant Dean of Mentoring and Executive Director of the Mentoring Academy at Will Cornell. Ruth is a thought leader as well as a day-to-day manager. Her research is about the mindset and skill set of peak performers, including Nobel Prize winners, astronauts, and Olympic champions. She's been recognized by the journal Nature and Columbia University as an expert in mentorship and leadership development, the Thinker's 50 radar list. She's also a semi-finalist for Forbes 50 over 50 list, as well as many other accolades. In addition to publishing in academic journals, she's a contributing author to Forbes and Psychology Today, where she writes about optimizing success. Ruth Godian is based near New York City and is here to talk about her book, The Success Factor, Developing the Mindset and Skill Set for Peak Performance. Welcome, Ruth. Thank you. It is so good to be here with you. It's great to be with you. Tell me, Ruth, when you were growing up, who was someone who influenced or inspired you? Oh, that has to be my grandma, Esther. Barely five feet tall with heels on. She was one of 13 women and 300 men to attend Columbia University's School of Pharmacy. That's when I realized you cannot let anything or anyone hold you back because if my grandma could do it, I could do it. Was there a story you think back on or just her way of being that you recollect growing up with her that stays with you today at, that kind of epitomizes what Grandma Esther meant to you? She was a force. She's a teeny tiny woman, but she was a force. When she entered a room, you could tell. Really, just to be in that kind of environment at that time in the 20s to study pharmacy and have nobody like you. And she graduated, she was still too young to legally have a license. So she bummed around Europe a little bit for six months until she was old enough. But she always taught me about being assertive, going after what it is that you want, but still being able to be a lady and be true to yourself. She was adamant about that. And I am the only natural born woman in my family for four generations. All the other women had to marry in. My grandfather was one of four brothers. My father had a brother. The brother had a son. I have two brothers and I have three sons. This was really important as to how to balance those two worlds and having your voice heard. And Grandma Esther taught me how. She was a role model and taught you that you don't have to be like a man in order to have strength and position and power in the world. And that's remarkable. Yeah, my power was different. Do you remember a decision you made or even a conversation that you had early in your career where that influence, that echo from Esther kind of came through and allowed you to make a different decision or go a different way than you would have otherwise? I think that it really is with me every single day for every decision, because I think being comfortable in my difference is what has allowed me to try all these different things. I am a doctor who's not a physician working in healthcare. I went back to school when I was 43 to get my doctorate. I started writing 
in my 40s and I'm publishing a book in my 50s. So it's all about being different and having your own voice. Those lessons learned were really instilled in me a very long time ago. My grandma Esther always told me that I was a beautiful writer. But at that time, all I've ever written were book reports. There was a prompt, you answer the question, and that was it. I never thought my voice was in there. So how interesting that finally now I am writing the book, The Success Factor, and it's all about my own voice and all about sharing the stories of other people. So the liberty I had, the freedom that I had, I understood what Grandma Esther was teaching me, that you can have the natural skills, but when you have the freedom to do what you want with them and what you think you can do with them and have people who push you beyond what you think you're capable of, that's when you can find true success. Great. Tell me a little bit about your current responsibilities as the chief learning officer at Will Cornell. My job is to make people successful. That's really the way I see it. I help with the educational scholarship. I help with the professional development. I help push people beyond what they think they're capable of. And I am their constant cheerleader, pushing them to do things in different ways, find what is possible for them because what works for one person does not work for another person. That's what I'm here to do each day, every day with the people who are at the front of the front lines, giving everything in order to help others. I see it as my small role to help them so that they can help others. I looked and saw that this is a position that was new as of about three years ago. I bet you had a hand in helping create that role. Is that true? Because I know it's the only one of its kind in the country. It's really because the leaders of the department are really extremely innovative and they are not afraid. In fact, they are excited to be at the forefront of change. They are able to connect dots. They're able to see gaps in what is missing and they know how to fill those gaps. They then look for the right people to help them do that. I learned a tremendous amount from people like that, which is, I think, what keeps me sharp and on my toes. I really enjoy it. I thank them every day for making this possible. Now, here's a little bit of context for people who are just learning about this. Part of what you oversee is a combined PhD and MD program so that people coming into this are vying for a very limited number of spots. It's extremely competitive to get in. And the people who come and are accepted in, who you get to work with day in and day out, are among the the best and brightest and most ambitious minds. What have you learned from being in that environment? Because it is such a challenging and competitive environment that people are going to be doing their best. Do they have some of the common motivational problems that often plague others who are looking to achieve big things in their own right? You're bringing up the previous role I had where I ran the MD-PhD program for 22 years. That was really a major catalyst for my research on success in the book because this program that had three and a half percent acceptance rate. You have a better chance of getting into Stanford than you have of getting into this program. Even amongst this group, which is the best of the best, trust me, I got a whole new definition of excellence by watching these students. Even amongst this group, there were certain people who floated to the top. And sadly, there were people who were leaving this career path after so much work, 
work and so much effort and so much that they had to give up to get in. And nationally, all of our conversations and books and academic papers were about those who were leaving what we call the leaky pipeline. My focus and my interest while I was part of those conversations and that movement, I always had an eye towards the other end of the spectrum, those who were floating to the top, those whose work was so exceptional that it more than made up for anybody who was leaving. Those were the people I wanted to focus on. That's why at the age of 43, I went back to school to study them. In fact, my doctoral dissertation was on the most successful physician scientists of our generation. That's what really launched all the research on success. Tell me about how you came to recognize or articulate the four pillars of the success factor. And I'll just name them now so that they're on the board. One is intrinsic motivation. The second is perseverance. The third one is building a strong foundation. And the fourth is ongoing growth and learning. How is it that you came to articulate them? What was it that helped you categorize them in those ways? It was a ton of research. First, it started with observing these things because I was working in a very competitive environment. I actually knew several Nobel Prize winners, which is actually how I started that original research. And as I mentioned, I got the doctorate. And I realized as I started originally with physician scientists, they all had these four things in common. But usually on the research of success, most people stick with one industry. I was curious if there was any relationship among the industry. I wanted to cross-pollinate. I looked at the Nobel Prize winners and NIH Institute directors and CEOs and astronauts and Olympic champions, and I realized all of them had these four things in common. When I approached these people, I said to them upfront, I am not interested in your successes. We've established that you're successful. I'm not interested in what I can Google about you. I'm significantly more interested in what it took to get there. So doing qualitative research on all of these people, the same themes kept coming up over and over again. In qualitative research, that's we look for major themes. And those were the four that really came up unanimously. That's how I knew that I was onto something. If an astronaut is just like an Olympic champion, that's when I realized that success can be learned. And if success can be learned, I'm an adult educator, I can teach it. So I started writing articles about it and giving keynotes about it. That's why I wrote the book, The Success Factor. That is such a major insight for people listening is to realize that if something is not innate, if somebody has learned it, if they have developed this skill over time, and there are patterns that show that this is a repeating occurrence, that is something that can be instilled and that it is available to anyone. There are certain predispositions, five foot four, chances are that even if you practice basketball every day, that's not going to be a good career path. But other than that, you can learn and benefit from applying these disciplines in whatever area you choose. So that's exciting news for everyone reading your book, The Success Factor, as well as listening to your words describe it. As a researcher, writer, manager, you know that a lot of times where you start out either a conversation or an article isn't where you end up. Were there any surprises that you came across as you were writing these things, thinking you had one hypothesis that you were working on, but being open to changes? There's actually a number of changes that were made. First, when I knew I was going to start my original research on physician scientists, and I started to tell my mentor, Dr. Bert Shapiro, my thoughts about what I was going to do. I was going to try to predict who would get in and the success, et cetera. He said to me, do something important, not just interesting. Because if it's interesting to you, it's important, it will have an impact. It'll have a ripple effect. That really changed my study to become a national study, which then led to this whole big years of work that I was doing. Really that one sentence, 
do something important, not just interesting. I'm going to jump in for a minute because that's a risk. You just opened it up. It's like, I'm hoping that I go down here and it leads to what I hope it does in a convergent way rather than really resetting the table. That's right. Absolutely right. It was an enormous risk. But one of the things that I learned from high achievers is that you have to fear not trying more than you fear failing. So I had to try and it paid off which is great. The other thing I realized when I was writing the book, at first I thought I can talk about the four elements of success, the intrinsic motivation, the perseverance, the strong foundation, and the continuous learning. That's interesting, but that's not very helpful because it doesn't teach people how to implement that in their own lives. That's what I realized is the differentiating factor that I have. I am trained and experienced as an adult educator, so I can teach the reader how they can take actionable steps to implement these success factors in their own lives. What I realized, Bill, is that what works for me may not work for you. And what works for me today may not work for me the next time I have a transition, a new move, a new partner, a new job, a pandemic. So I had to offer options for everyone. That's really what the whole last third of the book is about, is how to implement every single one of these pillars of success and to offer a variety of options so that it works for for any reader at any time. Which is an enormous service because it goes above and beyond just sharing this enormous base of research that people in these days where there's still a pandemic lockdown, there's a lot of ambiguity in work, which leads to anxiety, which leads to frustration and burnout. What is a message or a tip that you could share with managers who are wondering how to not just get high performance, because that may seem too far out, but how do you bring people together in an environment with so much uncertainty, like many managers are experiencing these days? I think it's really about setting that culture of excellence. The first paper I wrote during the pandemic was about mentoring during a pandemic. It's about lowering expectations before you ever raise expectations. Because you have to deal with what we call a cognitive load, what people are dealing with right now, and the power of their load, what they have to help them deal with their cognitive load. And it's different for every person. So if you have older kids at home versus younger kids that you have to homeschool, School, what you'll need to do is actually quite different. This is a great time to really get to know a little bit about the personal side of the people that you work with and what is their cognitive load and what can you do to help. Maybe sometimes it's just listening. That's all you need to do. But what you definitely need to do is offer empathy. If you're not able to offer empathy, this team will not stay with you. You want to get a team that wants to be there. You want to develop a team of high achievers because the high achievers are 400% more productive than the average employee. Who do you think their friends are? Other high high achievers. achievers. Exactly. So you want to not just retain them, you want to help them flourish. And sometimes it starts with empathy. I've read a study as well that talked about the best referrals into a company are from other high achievers and high performers in that company. That's why they encourage people to make those recommendations of their friends and colleagues and others who they want to work with. Because there's less of a tolerance for people who are high achievers, who have an ambition and desire to do bigger and better things, to have people around who aren't pulling their weight and aren't contributing the same way. Yeah, that's very frustrating for a high achiever is that they go all in and to have other people who just phone it in, that's very frustrating to them. What would you say is a a 
signal of success that people will see once they have people orienting around the idea or the goal and objective of being a high-performing team? What are some of the early markers that you'd notice? You'll notice this excitement that is percolating. You'll notice that they are being innovative. You'll notice that they are not afraid to try new things because remember, high achievers fear not trying more than they fear failing. When you see a lot of innovations, a lot of trial and error, a lot of learning from every exercise that's done, every stumble that is taken, that's when you're onto something. When the high achievers face a challenge and they don't quit, you know that they are onto something. And slowly but surely, you will see the bar of excellence being raised within the organization. Everybody wants to be there. They don't just have to be there because they are surrounded by people who support each other, develop each other, and lift each other up. Look for those markers. That's terrific. I think implicit in that is that there's a level of psychological safety for people to take these risks and to try things that may or may not work, like new innovations. To say I'm setting aside time to learn and develop new skills in addition to just fulfilling and making my numbers and meeting my objectives. One of the things I think is interesting is you mentioned a story, and I think it was Mikhail Bartman, who was the Olympic medal winner, who got like silver or bronze, and then relayed to you that that made him even more committed to succeeding at the next Olympics. It was that response to not meeting their goal that was just so enlightening for me to read. That's right. In fact, Mikhail Bartman is a Dutch rower, and Apollo Anton Ono, the American speed skater, who's the most decorated winter Olympian, really shared an almost identical story with me. I asked him, which is your favorite medal? He has eight of them. He showed me his silver, which I thought was so odd. Why wouldn't you show me your gold? One of them. You've got so many. And he said, no, this was my first medal. This is when I was knocked down right before the finish line. This was six months after 9-11, when the world as we knew it had changed. This was my time. This was my starting point. This was now my baseline where I was going to grow from. And that's what he did. When you asked Olympians about their medals, hardly any of them had them out on display. It has a significance that they had to pull them out of a drawer, a sock drawer in one case. It's probably a bad sign if you came across an Olympian in your work and at their mailbox, they said, Joe Champion, home winner of the gold Olympic medal in speed skating. Here's my URL of highlights. That would be something that would be a counter indicating point of them having this quality. What was the quality that you identified by people not having them on display? All of the high achievers were exceptionally humble. In fact, when I approached them saying, you came up on my score as an extreme high achiever. I'd like to ask for an interview, et cetera. I said, I am? I would say, but you won the Nobel Prize. If you're not a high achiever, what exactly does that say about the rest of us? It's so true. All of them were like that. And I shared stories over and over again of how humble these people were. In fact, you're right. The Olympians, I always ask them to show me their medals. Only two of them had it on display. One of them, Scott Hamilton, the figure skater, gave them all away. He said it was too suffocating. I couldn't understand why they wouldn't have a trophy room. Because if I won an Olympic medal, I don't know, I think I'd vacuum with it, go to the grocery store with it. It was hard earned. And they were 
repeatedly said to me, that was a chapter in my life. It's not the entire story. That's why they didn't crumble after their Olympic reign ended, because there was always something bigger. There was always yet a new goal to achieve. I think that is why they are so healthy and so comfortable with their win. I think that's remarkable. And as I was reading your book, I was thinking about how that compared to lottery winners who don't develop any of the disciplines necessary to succeed. Luck just shined down on them. And the studies show that within three or four years, most of them are pretty much back at the same socioeconomic level as where they started, where Olympians move to a level of achievement. And whether they win a medal or not, they went on from there to other heights, maybe in other industries, maybe in other businesses. Maybe they just pursued excellence, but they maintain those qualities and those characteristics. I think really what we're going to say is it's because it's who they became. It's so true. They always had a new goal that they were going after, and they went with the same laser-like focus in order to achieve that next goal. Some of them became lawyers. Some of them became investors. And some of them became keynote speakers and motivational speakers. They each had something else, but when they go into something, they go all in. They don't dabble. They go all in. I think their ability to focus that way is really quite impressive. Now, some of them have become very good friends of mine now. When I would ask them to come be a guest on my show, they would say, oh, I'd love to, but I'm just so overwhelmed with such and such right now. Rain check. They know how to say no. Even to good friends, they know how to say no. No, which is the hardest part for so many of us. We try to say yes to all the shiny toys, all the available opportunities. They have figured out long ago that they're not going to lose a friend over this, but they are going to stay laser fixated on their goal. I think from my experience and your research as well, many people have this notion that Olympians have tremendous financial support, tremendous arenas and training facilities, but that's very unusual. Many of them struggle for years in the most basic of circumstances and rise without a lot of financial support. It's only after they've achieved their goal that they can parlay some of that into financial material success. Is that a factor that you've noticed that plays into their ability to be resourceful? They're definitely gritty, that's for sure. And it's not just the Olympians, it's also the astronauts. I tell people astronauts are government workers. They're not making all that much. But it's about their way that they are able to pivot into whatever they are doing next. And high achievers control what they can control. They don't worry about issues that are not within their control. That's not where they waste their energy and their focus. They focus on specifically what's within their control and they work to leverage that. One of the things that I think is interesting is how they build their networks of either training partners or others to help them. Your focus has been for decades in how to effectively mentor people. What are some of the perspectives and skills that you have now that you wish you had as a new mentor or coach helping others in order to succeed in their careers? I think the great mentors have really two great roles. This is Kathy Cram's work out of Boston. She says that a mentor is there to help you with your career. They believe in you more than you believe in yourselves. They can give you skills and perspective that you may not have, but they're also your cheerleader on the side. They help with what's called the psychosocial support because sometimes times we're so focused on what we're doing that everything just seems to be enormous. As my grandma Esther said, don't make a mountain out of a molehill. I am so deep inside the jar, I cannot even read the label. And sometimes that mentor can really help give you perspective because what seems like the 
worst thing ever right now, the mentor can give you perspective and say, six months, you're not even going to remember it. So let's figure out a plan of how to get you out of it so that you're functional again. I think knowing early on the power that mentors have, I would have gotten them a lot sooner in my career, a lot earlier in my career. The research on mentorship is crystal clear. Those who mentor out earn and outperform those who don't. Oh, there's a switch there I want to highlight. It's not just those who get mentors, but you're saying that those who mentor, who not just learn and benefit, but then turn around and pay it forward to the next generation or to other people who are their colleagues and even competitors at times in order to build a better, stronger environment. How have you seen that play out in your work life and experience? Every single one of the high achievers who I've spoken to, from the astronauts to the Nobel Prize winners, every single one of them had a team of mentors. Now, part of my definition of success that I used in my research is you had to create a paradigm shift in your work so that the way we do see or think about things is different because of what you did. You are recognized for your work. And as you move up, you are bringing other people up with you. Every single one of the extreme high achievers I have spoken with has brought other people up. They have mentored people either one-on-one, such as Dr. Bob Lefkowitz, who's a Nobel Prize winner in chemistry, has mentored over two hundred people one-on-one, 200. And we have people who have developed programs such as Dr. Charlie Camarda, the astronaut who created a nonprofit, the Epic Challenge Foundation, in order to teach young people how to take strategic risks, how to build high performance teams, how to challenge what we know to be true. All of these people have done it in their own way. So they have also been mentored and they are mentors. If someone is thinking to themselves, gosh, I think I'm ready to be a mentor to someone, what advice would you give them to help them, encourage them to take on that relationship or to have more confidence that they're ready to be a mentor because they have something to contribute and give? I think everyone, no matter their age, no matter their expertise, has something that they know that someone else doesn't know. So everyone could be a mentor. I think what you have to do is let's not use that mentor title because when you ask someone to be a mentor, you're asking them to take on another obligation. You will likely be turned down. If you offer to be someone's mentor, mentor. How do you just approach someone? That's awkward. So don't use the mentor word. Just get rid of it. Instead saying, I really loved what you're doing. I had some ideas. I'd love to talk to you about it. Are you interested? I have an idea of how you can take this to the next level. Now that's a conversation I'd love to have. Yep. And that's just stripping away the title. It's getting rid of that awkwardness. It says, look, we'd love to exchange ideas. Wonderful. Ruth, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best Lightning Round? Ready or not. Here we go. So at the beginning of the interview, I asked you about some someone who influenced or inspired you. And you talked about your grandma asked, when you were a teenager, Ruth, what is a song that you loved? Oh boy. Now I'm really dating myself. I think it's Eye of the Tiger. Oh boy, I'm going to sing it now. Yes. It's the Eye of the Tiger. It's the, <laughs> that's my still my go-to song. What is the most effective way that you get your word out about your mission each week? Oh, I write for Forbes and every Tuesday morning, I put out another article about optimizing success. And I think that's my best way. You have a lot of commitments. You have two full-time jobs in addition to writing books and publicizing 
criticizing them. What is a tool or technique that you use to help you stay on track and be productive? I am very strict with my calendar. Because I am a morning person, I'm significantly more focused in the morning. So I try to do all of my cognitive heavy work in the morning, which means my writing, my editing, etc., and leave passive tasks that don't require that deep focus, such as Zooms and emails for the afternoon, and actually carving out time within my calendar to get through my to-do list. Clearly, we've both been influenced by Dan Pink in that arena. Ah, yeah. <laughs> and Dan Pink actually endorsed my book. So love that you mentioned him. Earlier, we talked about Dr. Bert Shapiro, who gave you some of the best advice you've ever received, which is don't just do something interesting, do something important. Ruth, what would you say is the worst advice you've ever received? No need to mention names, but what would be? I mentioned to someone that I wanted to go back to school and I was 43. This person said to me, you don't need a doctorate for what you want to do. I listened to him and I kept my poker face because I realized he's never once asked me what I want to do. So glad I didn't listen. What would you say is the best $100 or so purchase you've made in the last six months? Oh, my books. I love reading. So that and AirPods, because this way I could do other things and not be tethered to the cord. What would you say is the best book you've given as a gift that's not one of your own? I actually give books as holiday gifts every year. I have given What Got You Here Won't Get You There by one of my mentors, Marshall Goldsmith, who wrote the foreword to my book, The Success Factor. And this year I gave the autobiography of Dr. Robert Lefkowitz, that Nobel Prize winner who mentored 200 people. He actually wrote his autobiography, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Stock, which is so funny, you'll laugh out loud. So those are the books that I've recently given out. What would you say is your definition of personal success? Not for anyone else, but just for you. How do you define success? Success is creating. It's the same definition I use from my book, creating a paradigm shift in the way people see things, do things, or process things, being recognized for your work as a thought leader, and elevating other people as you rise through the ranks. When you observe people interacting in meetings or are asked to participate as a coach or even in some of the organizations that you participate in, what are some of the markers you look for to know that there is a good environment for leadership development? So when I lead anything from a keynote to a workshop, I will actually do a few things. First of all, when I'm talking, I actually move to the back of the room. The back of the room is where the quiet people who are often checked out go. The power seats, the most powerful people usually sit in the front because that's the most vulnerable seats as close to the speaker as possible. By flipping the room and moving to the back, I have just made the people who are trying to be invisible. Next time we're all in person again, take a look as to who sits in the back. I gave those people the power and put them in the power seats just by teaching from the back of the room. That's number one. Number two is when I put people in to groups, I actually mix it up. So the most senior person from the C-suite and the person at the front desk will likely be in the same group. And the way I work things in my workshops, and there's a lot of post-it notes, et cetera, they will both have the same exact voice, which is different. And that's how I know learning's taking place. That's powerful. Ruth, what would you say is the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most personal satisfaction or success? In the past, I used 
used to think that you do good work, people will notice and you will be rewarded for it. I now know that's not true. If you want people to notice what you've been doing because people are busy, you have to let them know. If you want to be nominated for something, let them know. Because otherwise, there's a big difference between thinking, oh, Bill would be competitive for this, to actually nominating Bill for this. Meanwhile, you're wondering, why didn't anyone nominate me? Because they're so busy with other things. So you have to just ask for things. As my father told me, you don't ask, you don't get. Give people the opportunity to give. Recently, what's something you asked for that you were happy to do? Because there's always some little bit of apprehension with that. What's something that you're glad you asked for that was significant, not just trivial? I asked people who I highly respect. I even cite their work in my work. I asked them to have a part in my book. I asked Marshall Goldsmith to write the forward. I was shaking when I asked. He didn't hesitate. He agreed. There are people who so enamored by their work, Dan Pink and Dory Clark, and I asked them to endorse my book and they all agreed, including many more. I think if I never would have asked for that, I never would have gotten it. Ruth, not only did you ask, but you came to share and and as a result, we've all been enlightened, stimulated, and challenged to do a little bit more and give a little bit more in order to bring our own success factor into activation. You have shared with us and helped us learn so many great ideas. All of us are thinking about our own relatives who were great role models for us, like your grandmother, Esther. You helped us learn about setting expectations, that sometimes raising expectations is a thing to do, and other times it's lowering expectations in order to create the gap that you talk about between the load that you have to manage and then being able to take on new things. We talked about how important it is to do things that are not just interesting, which are personally satisfying, but that are important, as well as so many more ideas. So I want to thank you again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Thank you so much for having me. This was an absolute pleasure. Ruth, before we say goodbye for now, where is it we can find out more about you and your work online? I can easily be found on my website, which is just my name, Ruth.com. Ruth, we're going to link to Ruth.com on the show notes of this episode, as well as your social media, as well as places to buy your book, The Success Factor, to make it super easy for anyone listening to find out more about your work and what you're up to now. Ruth Godian, author of The Success Factor, Developing the Mindset and Skill Set for Peak Performance. I want to thank you once again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Thanks. It was a pleasure to be here. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review My Quest for the Best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.